So recently, um, at work, uh, the home page for my, um, like, for the web browser at work on my computer, um, it always pulls up MSN, like, home page. And they always have lots of kind of interesting articles on there. And one that I saw, I believe it was on Friday, I saw a really odd article, and um, I don't even remember what the title was, but it was basically saying, like, is it a wolf? Is it a wolf man? Is it a dire wolf? I guess they were interested in Game of Thrones. But um, the, the article was about a creature that was shot and killed by a rancher in Montana. And normally that wouldn't be a noteworthy thing, but it was noteworthy, and they made an article about it, because it was a wolf-like creature, but they weren't sure exactly what it was. Experts couldn't really determine what this creature was. They thought it was a wolf, obviously, um, but they couldn't say for sure because of weird anomalies with the body structure. It had a really abnormally short snout. It had really small paws and short legs. Um, I actually saw a picture on the article, and when I was looking at it, my first thought was almost more of like, this is a, almost more of a hyena than a wolf sort of thing. It was, it was weird. It was weird looking. Um, but for the most part, it did resemble a wolf, and it almost certainly is one. But because of these weird anatomical traits, people were really confused about what it was. And um, I actually double-checked the article last night just to see if there had been, like, updates on this situation about what it was. Um, and they actually sent in some animal experts, sent in the DNA of it to get tested to see what species it is. Um, and so they should hopefully figure out what is, what is up with this wolf-like creature soon. But, but isn't that interesting? We know what something is supposed to look like. In this case, it's a wolf. Um, and when an example clearly doesn't fit that mold, like this particular animal, we intuitively know that something is wrong, that something is off. And so we get the DNA, DNA tested to find out what's genetically wrong with this creature. Sometimes the nature of something is corrupted or changed so much that it can be assumed to cease to be what it's supposed to be. In this case, they're wondering, is this even considered a wolf anymore? Um, and that happens with all kinds of things, not just animals. It even happens with churches, if you think about it. Sometimes churches drift away from biblical teaching, truth, and practice so much so that they become unhealthy, or they can even cease to be true churches of God at all. So this morning, I'm actually starting a short sermon series on the nature of the church. Uh, Caleb and I, and maybe hopefully even some others, uh, will be preaching through this short series during the weeks when Chet isn't preaching through Hebrews. We've done this numerous times in the past, and so we're starting a new short series this week. Um, and again, like I said, it's going to be looking at the nature of the church. The point of this series is to help remind us what the church is and what our local congregation should therefore look like in light of that. For those of us who are members of Redeemer, this is a, a helpful and needed reminder. We don't want to neglect these truths and allow ourselves to drift away into a church version of this wolf creature in Montana. For those of you who aren't members here, 
I hope that this helps you understand what the whole point of church is. Maybe you're not a regular attender of any church. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Um, Maybe you don't really understand why do people get together every Sunday and a lot of the times, multiple times throughout the week as well, to talk about Jesus. Why do we do that? Um, I hope that this sermon and the rest of the series will maybe help you understand that a little bit better. Um, So, Redeemer, my prayer is that these sermons would help us in two ways. Um, as I was reflecting on, like, what do I hope, what do I ta- like, desire us to take away from it? What am I praying for um, in light of these, this topic? There's two things that come to mind immediately. First, I pray that this would encourage us. I believe that you will see as we go through the series that we are not only a true church, but a healthy one in many ways. When you notice that, take time to praise God for that. Really, thank God for the ways that you see his, like, see Redeemer living out his calls in Scripture for the church. That is, that's only by his grace that it's possible. That is a precious gift from him to us. So thank him for that. But also, second, I pray that we would be challenged by this series. I pray that it can, in a sense, help us recalibrate our church compass in the areas where maybe we've turned a little bit away from north towards the east or west. I hope that this is recalibrating for us. No church is perfect, and that includes us. So let's strive together to even better live out the realities that the Word is going to teach us through this series. So with that said, I'm starting this morning with the most fundamental question that must be addressed if we're going to tackle a topic like this. What is the church? And to answer that question, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Um, Please turn there now, if you haven't already. It's going to be on page uh, 1014 in the Black Pew Bibles. I don't know what page it's on in the white ones, um, but just look for the book of James. It's right after that. Uh, But 1 Peter 2, this passage, verses 4 through 10, is one of the greatest passages that we can turn to regarding the nature and purpose of the church. Um, And so as I read it, consider how Peter himself is answering that question of what is the church? How is he defining it? How is he helping us think through what it is, what its nature is? So be thinking about that as I read it. Now follow along with me as I do. So again, this is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. The word says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, what is the church? Here will be our working definition this morning. And I do, I am going to have this up on the PowerPoint so that you can keep looking at it throughout the sermon. Um, The church is the group of people chosen graciously by God through faith to exalt Jesus Christ together. Um, So let me say that again. The church is the group of people chosen graciously by God through faith to exalt Jesus Christ together. Now, I tried to be succinct, I tried to be brief, yet do definition justice. Um, And so this is what I've come up with. This is what I believe we see Peter defining the church as in his letter here in this passage. Um, And so I want to take my cues from him. So uh, that is the working definition that we're going to have as we go through the rest of today's sermon Um, And so much is packed into that one sentence, so we need to unpack it. And that's what I want to spend the rest of today's sermon doing. I want to break it up into three points. Um, And my hope is that we can, as we make our way through this definition, the full picture will become clear to us. Um, It's the picture that I want you to leave here with this morning. And it's the picture that I want us to strive to be as we are going to, if we are going to call ourselves Redeemer Church to be a church of God. And so, dealing with this subject, what is the church? Numerous books have been written on this subject. I'm not going to be able to speak comprehensively to it. Like, even as I was reflecting this morning, there's so much more than I want to, to be able to say and talk about. Much of that will be addressed in the sermons that will come in later weeks. But this morning, I really wanted to take some time to Reflect on what is the church and especially focus on how is it shaped, how is it created by God. Um, I, I want us to recognize the supernatural reality of, of us, of this body. We, we have called this sermon series The Gospel Made Visible, and that's what the church is. The church is the gospel made visible, and we are that church. And so I want us to really focus on that and see and be encouraged by what God has done in us and through Jesus Christ to make the church, to make us who we are. So I really want you to take that away this morning. But so first, unpacking that original statement. First, I want us to focus on the fact that the church is chosen by God. So where do I get that? Notice Peter's argument here. In verse 4, look at that. He says, who is the him in the first phrase? It says, as you come to him. So who is that? The him is Jesus Christ. Peter spent the whole first chapter of this letter establishing that fact. We, we haven't read that, but if, I would encourage you, go back and read 1 Peter 1 later if if you don't believe me, but take my word for it, the first chapter of this letter is spent building the foundation 
that Jesus Christ is the root and cornerstone of the church, of Christianity. And so that is the hymn in verse 4. And in fact, Peter spent, um, if you look back at Acts 4, verse 11, you will see that Peter used this very same metaphor of the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God to describe Jesus during one of his sermons in Jerusalem shortly after Pentecost. So as Luke is writing up an account of um, some of Peter's sermons, he does that. He wrote up some of Peter's sermons in Jerusalem in the early church history. And if you look back at Acts 4.11, he uses this exact same analogy and metaphor and specifically states that Jesus is who he is referring to. So we know that the hymn, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, is Jesus Christ. But Peter goes on. He says in verse 5 that you yourselves are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. So do you see what he's saying there? Jesus isn't the only living stone chosen by God. Peter's audience, the church, is too. And that's confirmed in verse 9. Look, look at verse 9. But you, again, this is referring to the church. He's writing to the church that's scattered. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the ex excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen his people and the church is that people. So that might sound great to you at first glance. You might be like, of course, Kyle, I, I know this. Like, this is good. But don't move too quickly on from that reality, from what I'm saying. If you aren't actually scandalized a little bit by hearing that people are chosen by God, then, then you might not be grasping the full implications of that statement. So let me say it again. People are chosen by God. In other words, we don't choose him. Do you see that? If God is the one doing the choosing, then it isn't us. We aren't, we are a chosen nation, as it says in verse 9, not a choosing nation. The church is the group of people selected by God, not the collection of people who have decided to choose him. Now, that's confusing because a lot of the time we use that language to talk about choosing God, choosing Jesus Christ. And in a sense, that is a reality, but there's more to it than that, and we'll get to that. So bear with me. But again, if you're still not convinced by what I'm saying, let's look at Deuteronomy 7. You can flip back there, but Peter is basically quoting a passage from Deuter Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. He says this um, in Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people on the, that the Lord set his... I'm sorry. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So does this bother you? Does this make you uncomfortable to be so helpless? To think that to have a relationship with God, he has to be the one to choose you, not the other way around. We have no leverage. We have no control. The ball is in his court, not ours. Is that hard for you to hear? I expect so, because it is for me. And I don't think that I'm the only one that feels that way about that. In my gut, it's hard to accept that. I don't like that thought. I want to be able to say that my relationship with God is due to my autonomous choosing, that I made it happen. I want to be able to claim that level of control for myself, but I can't, and it's unsettling to me. But friends, here is why that is one of the most precious truths we could ever hear. Paul says this in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then, so that's actually Paul quoting Psalm 14. But then he f- finishes up his statement with this summation in uh, Romans 3, verse 20. So a couple verses later he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Redeemer, it's good that God chooses us, because if he didn't, our church would not exist. No churches would exist. No one would have a relationship with God if we had to be the initial initiators of that relationship. No one would have a relationship with him. There has never been and will never be a person who wants to choose God but isn't chosen by him. No one wants God. No one seeks after him by themselves apart from his work in their life. Left to ourselves, we would all choose sin and self over him every single day time. If you desire God and you think that is because of your own choosing, you have mistaken the effect for the cause. No, your desire for him is not because you, apart from him, have decided to choose him. It is because he has already chosen you and you're Turning to him is the evidence of that. It is the effect of him choosing you. As 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. That has to do with our relationship with him too, not just our relationships with each other. So if you, like me, are unsettled by the fact that God chooses us, not the other way around, it's because we're not understanding our true state. 
We are not reasonable beings when it comes to spiritual matters. Without his help, we crave sin and self-glorification. And we're deceived by ourselves, and so we think we are good a lot of the time, even though we're not. We are, think about it this way. We are running full speed, headlong, off of a cliff, and there is no talking us out of this suicidal frame of mind. Apart from God, that is the state we are all in. Running full speed, headlong, of our own desire, off of a cliff. But what does God do? Out of love, he grabs us. He pulls us back. And not only that, he reaches into our very hearts and minds and changes us so that we would see how crazy we've been and that we would no longer desire to just plunge headlong off of this cliff. Because God chooses us, salvation is possible. It means that there is hope because there wouldn't be any if it were just up to us. Every single one of us would plunge over the side of the cliff into hell, and we would all do it with crazed smiles on our faces. But God chooses us. That is an incredible gift, an incredible display of love, and that the existence of the church itself is a testimony to God's incredible patience and kindness and love because of that reality. The church is chosen by God. So church, that means we are his. Our lives are his because we would be nothing without him. He gets all of us, just not the parts that we are willing to hand over to him. And that is application to take away from this fact. Our church should not be a group of half-hearted, semi-devoted people. If it is, we simply do not understand what has happened to us what lengths God has gone to for our sake. That will be huge when we talk about um, exalting Christ in our third point, the fact that he gets all of us. I want you to remember that. But for now, remember this. Redeemer, you are God's fully and completely, and that is the best thing you could ever hope for. But now, Remember, everyone, that I originally defined the church. Well, sorry. Rewind a little bit. So, Redeemer, remember that. If you are here, though, and you are not a Christian, I ask that you seriously consider what has been said already. I pray that, that God will use this morning to open your eyes. He might be pulling you back from the cliff's edge right now. Don't fight him. Recognize your need for him, more de- that you need him more desperately than you need anything in this life. And pay extra close attention to what we're going to be talking about next. Because the heart change that you need to turn away from the edge of that cliff is a matter of faith, which is what we're going to turn to now. So remember, everyone, that I originally defined the church as the group of people chosen graciously by God through faith, to exalt Jesus Christ together. So I want to turn your attention to the next portion of that definition. So second, the church exists by grace through faith. Now this reality goes hand in hand with our first point, if you think about it. 
without God choosing us, not a single one of us would seek after him or do good. Even our seemingly greatest acts are ultimately motivated by selfishness, not a desire to honor God and just purely, utterly sacrificially love others. So where would that leave us? It means that every one of us would come to the end of our lives and would stand guilty, not innocent, before God the judge. So friends, your ability to join the church of God cannot hinge upon your good works because if it did, it would be impossible for you to join, to be part of the people of God. It would be impossible for any of us without God's action on our behalf. No one is good enough. That is the point of grace. Grace is God's unmerited gift to us. It is him saying, I will love you and cherish you, not because of the good that, not because you are good, but simply because I want to love you, as we saw in Deuteronomy 7. You cannot earn his love, but more importantly, you don't need to. He offers it to you free of charge. All you must do is believe that it is yours. That is faith. That is why the church exists by grace through faith. But look with me at 1 Peter 2, verse 6. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You guys, God's grace has come to us specifically in the form of Jesus Christ. Faith is not just simply saying, God loves me, and that's enough. I can trust that he loves me. Because God is not only a loving God, but he is a just God. And he is a righteous and holy God, which means if we have sinned against him, there must be an account dealt for that. Judgment must be served. So how can God both love us in our sin, yet also be holy and righteous and a perfect judge? That's where Jesus Christ comes in. That's how God can be perfect and holy and right and good and just, but also incredibly loving and gracious and merciful. He is where we place our faith. He is the focal point of 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. He is the living stone, the cornerstone, that was rejected by men and chosen and precious to God. If we believe in him, we will not be put to shame. But what does that actually mean, though? How is Jesus able to accomplish that for us? Let me just share something. So what does it mean for us to put our faith in Jesus and for him to take his shame upon, on, upon himself. That means that a man who has spent years in prison can tell you that he is happy and grateful because he is forgiven and loved by God. So this was just an incredible story. I was getting my haircut. This was actually just yesterday that this happened. I was getting my haircut. Um, and I got into one of the most amazing conversations with my barber. Um, I've been actually going to him for a while now, for a couple of years, and 
Um, I know, I've, I've known for pretty much that whole time that he considers himself a Christian. We've had a number of conversations about that. But until yesterday, I hadn't actually heard his testimony of his faith. Um, and he shared it with me, though. Um, it actually came about because we were talking about a book that he was reading, and it, it was just, it was an incredibly providential conversation. Um, he shared his testimony with me, and it was beautiful. Um, so my barber, his name is James, He's had a very rough history. Uh, he spent year, he's spent years of his life in prison. Um, I mean, he hasn't been in, in jail for a while now, but um, he's been there on five different occasions. He would be incarcerated, he would be, he'd serve his time, he'd be let go, and then he'd do something uh, criminal, a criminal act to get arrested again. Um, a couple times it was robbery, um, a couple times it was uh, due to drug crimes. Uh, he actually, while he was serving in Vietnam, uh, he became addicted to heroin. And uh, he spent years of his life just in and out of prison dealing with that addiction and dealing with crimes associated with it. Um, and he was caught in this cycle that he could not get out of in his own strength. But... Guys, his, it is so amazing to hear him talk about, ab, about this because when he talks about his time in prison, he talks about how much he cherishes it, how much it was a blessing to him. He doesn't look at it as though it was this like, stain on his life or this time that he deeply regrets, but he sees it as this precious time in his life because the Lord used that time to open his eyes to his need for a savior. He saw his guilt, but he also saw how the Bible teaches that Jesus lived a perfect life, one that we cannot live ourselves, and he died on the cross to take our guilt from us. That gets back to what I was saying about how God can be a just and righteous and holy God, yet still love us sinners, because he sent his son to live a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live for ourselves, and he died on the cross, and in so doing, he took the punishment and penalty for our sins upon himself. It's the most wonderful exchange in all, of, in all of history. Jesus was condemned for our sins, even though he had none himself, so that we could be glorified for his righteousness that he had and we didn't. It's incredible to think about. And he did it. He did that exchange for us so that we could be forgiven and loved by God, that we could be welcomed into fellowship with our Heavenly Father. James, my barber, saw that the Bible teaches that we are saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that he truly has conquered our sin for us. He took our punishment and overcame it. So it doesn't have to be ours anymore through our faith in the work that Jesus has done for us. That would, that's what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of the church. That hope, that confidence. Our faith alone is all that is needed to unite us to Jesus and bring us into the church of God. James like I said, my barber, he learned that, believed that, and he was saved. And his faith is the evidence that God has chosen and loved him. 
And he's not ashamed of his past because he knows that Jesus already paid for those sins, those things that he would otherwise regret. Before God, he is not guilty of any charges. So therefore, even despite his past, or I would even argue in light of his very rough past, he is a happy and joyful man by grace through faith. That's how we should be as the true church of God because we should all recognize that if we have placed our faith and hope in Jesus as well, that is true for us. So let me ask you this. What shame are you holding on to? What do you still feel like you have to do before God will be pleased with you? What regrets from your past still haunt you? What discontentment do you still harbor because you aren't who you think you need or should be? Friends, believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You cannot add to the righteousness you already have in him. And you cannot add to the love that God already has for you through him. Look with me again at verse 10. It says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is such a precious reality and truth. Again, the work is done. Jesus did it. Your works cannot diminish or add to your standing before God. You have mercy, and he is not ashamed of you if you're trusting in Christ's finished work. Any one of us could make a shipwreck of our lives one day. Maybe, maybe you're already sort of feeling like that's the case. Maybe you feel like everything's going wrong. Maybe you feel like you're just locked in the same sin cycle just over and over and over and feel like you can't get yourself out of it. Maybe you just feel like you're making all of the wrong decisions, thinking about things all the wrong way. Maybe you just can't seem to spend what seems to be enough time in the word and prayer. You just feel like you're failing as a Christian. Welcome to the club. Like that's, that's all of us. That's what we as Christians should be most eager to recognize and accept, that we are all, in a sense, failures. If we were only identified with our own works, but we're not. We're not identified with our works at all. We're identified with Christ's. So hope and trust in that. That is the unbelievable confidence we are offered through the gospel. And that is the foundation of the church. It is how, that's how it exists. And it must change the, we, the way we look at the world. It should inform the counsel we give ourselves and each other, especially when we're discipling one another, helping one another battle against sin. We have to fight the tendency to be just purely moralistic. We'll get more into that in a little bit, but we have to be able to remind one another that our hope is not in our self-achieved holiness. It's not possible. Even if we are conforming our lives 
into the likeness of Christ. God is sanctifying us, and so we are being made holy. But that is just like, like a little bucket of water compared to the Pacific Ocean. It's nothing compared to what we need. But Jesus has offered that to us. So again, it should inform the counsel we give ourselves and each other as we battle sin and pursue holiness. It should inform the goals that we have for ourselves. It should inform the way that we think about maturity and growth in the Christian life, what that journey even looks like. We should prize humility and dependence on Christ more than we even prize like, our knowledge of doctrine or having our lives just appear put together. Do you want to know the Bible and doctrine well? Good. That's a good thing. That's a good desire to have. But beware. Don't let that become an ultimate thing for you. The reality is that some of the most knowledgeable and doctrinally sound Christians you know are quite possibly some of the least mature Christians that you know because they don't depend on Jesus. They depend on their knowledge. The healthiest Christians, though, are... And the healthiest churches are those who tell each other and the world the truth, that we are not good enough. But that is okay. That is the reality that God wants us to recognize so that we would would fall before the cross of Christ and say, not my righteousness, but his. As he has taken my unrighteousness upon himself. That is our hope. And because it is found in him, no matter how many times we sin, we can come back to God with the same faith, the same refrain, and the same hope that his love for us is steadfast in Christ. So friends, let's be a church that is boldly and deeply dependent upon Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I plead with you to trust him today. Turn to him in faith. He loves you and died so that you might receive his grace and mercy. The works that you do yourself will never be enough. None of ours will. But we have him to turn to. But again... Remember that our definition for the church is that it is a group of people chosen graciously by God through faith to exalt Jesus Christ together. So we are now left with the final part of that address. Um, The church exalts Jesus Christ together. So that is our purpose. That is what we are seeking and pursuing together. I mean, think about our church statement of faith. It starts to exalt Jesus Christ. like That's why we are here. We want to exalt Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses four through five um, in 1 Peter 2 again. It says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So notice what's going on here. Jesus is the superior living stone. But the church is made up of living stones too. We are 
living stones like him who are being built up into a house and priesthood so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And then look with me again at verse 9. This is what I would say is the most crucial verse that really hones in and clarifies what is the purpose of the church. Not just how is the church composed, how does it exist, but what is our purpose and pursuit together. We have verse 9, says very clean, clearly and poignantly what that is. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, Peter is really clear right there. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Both of these passages that we see here at the beginning and at the end of of our full passage use similar language to point out the same fact. The church is meant to exalt Jesus Christ together. So there are a couple quick things I want to kind of point out about that that I want us to, to reflect on together. So first... The church has got to do this exalting of Jesus Christ together. We're meant to do it together, not just simply as individuals. Again, look back at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Is a house composed of just one stone or one brick? No, a house is composed of many bricks, many stones, built up fit together rightly so that the foundation and the architecture is stable and so that the house can properly function. A house is composed of many bricks, many stones that all function together to provide shelter, to provide a home, to provide a place for someone to reside. We... As the church are the house of God. But we can only be that together, collectively. A lot of people focus so much on their own personal relationship with God that they don't realize that they are meant to exalt him more fully in the presence and fellowship of the local church. Not just by themselves. We can do that to a degree, individually, of course. But we lose sight of the fact that God's intention and design for the church is so that the greatest display of his gospel, again, going back to the title of our sermon series, the gospel made visible, the way that the gospel is made most visible, the way that the work of God is put on clearest display through the church is when the church is functioning together when the people of God are coming together in fellowship, in unity, in peace, as we refine one another, even as we rebuke one another, as we come together on Sunday mornings, when we are singing together, when we are praying together, there is a spiritual significance to that. There's a spiritual power in that that does not exist when we are doing that just by ourselves. We overlook that reality a lot of the time. 
it's easy to think about even just Sunday mornings to come in. We'll, we'll talk and catch up with each other on how the week is going. But then once we're thinking about, once we're singing the songs, once we're praying, once we're listening to the sermon, we get into self-mode. We think about just what, what does this mean for me? But when we do that, we're missing out on so much opportunity to reflect on and see the work of God in the lives of those around us. So even now, as, as I am preaching to you and as you are listening to me, take some time to consider what God could be doing in the heart of someone else in the congregation, someone else that is sitting nearby you right now. Maybe, maybe God is comforting them right now. Maybe he's challenging them. Maybe he is providing them strength and resolve in something that they weren't sure about or... Um, just giving them a hope that they didn't have before. Maybe he is changing the heart of someone near you from death to life at this very moment. That's something that we can be a part of together that we can't be a part of individually. There's an access, an opportunity to the Spirit of God when we are together that we don't have when we are apart. So let's remember that and let's appreciate our time in fellowship together because of that. Um, I mean, even, I'm even thinking back about um, the, the blog post that Ben put up about singing together in worship that he read earlier to us. Like there is, again, I'm just reiterating myself, but don't forget this, that there is a spiritual signific- significance to our corporate fellowship and worship that doesn't exist when we are apart. And so there's a beauty in that that we, we, we miss out on if we don't, we don't consider that together. So let's do that. So that's one thing that I want us to consider. But then also, second, we are a priesthood making spiritual sacrifices according to verse 5 in 1 Peter 2. But what does that mean? What does he mean by that? That is where the larger context of Peter's letter is helpful for us to, to figure that out. Um, in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16, so shortly before our verses, um, Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober, sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And immediately following our passage, um, Peter says this in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So again, immediately after the passage that we've been looking at already, Peter says this, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a theme that Peter brings up multiple times throughout the letter. Because our God is holy, 
we should be holy. And he promises that as we pursue that by faith, he will be glorified through that. That is what Peter means when he's talking about our spiritual sacrifices and our holy priesthood and us being a holy nation, as we see in verse 9. They aren't literal sacrifices of goats and lambs and bulls like they were during the time of the Israelites. The sacrifices of the church of God since Christ has now come are our pursuits of holiness. They are our acts of obedience and faith and love. They are demonstrations of holiness in the lives of church members. We as living stones are meant to resemble Jesus and his righteousness. But notice that this passage doesn't just tell us to be holy so that we can be more loved by God. Again, that's not the point of it. Our pursuit of holiness is due to our confidence that we already have received mercy and love and that we will not be ashamed. We have been legally declared not guilty by God because of Jesus Christ. So we desire to live out that verdict. The heart of the Christian is one that wants to do good first and foremost because we want to resemble the Lord that we love. We love holiness now, even though we once loved sin. We treasure our Savior who came and died for us. And we want to follow him. We want to think the way that he thinks. We want to love the things that he loves, delight and be pleased by the things that delight and please him. We want to act the way that he calls us to act and that he acted and will act again when he returns. The more like him we are, the more joy we will experience. And that leads into my final comment that I want us to, to kind of take away from this point. Third, Christ is excellent. He is excellent. And our purpose is to tell the world about him. Friends, sometimes it's easy to get lost in the hustle and bustle of our own lives. But we've got to stop and behold Christ. I mean, look again at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when you read that, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, do you have excellencies of Jesus Christ that immediately come to your mind? Do you have attributes of your Lord that you're like, yes, I love that. I cherish that. He is wonderful and excellent. I adore him. Or is it, is it tough for you to think about those things? If it is, turn to him, behold him, seek him in his word and know him. Take a moment to stop right now and think about a time when something took your breath away because it was so striking, so glorious to you. Maybe it was something out in nature. Maybe it was your wife walking down the aisle. It could be any number of things. Something that just took your breath away by how just magnificent it was. What did that for you? 
Well, know that Jesus can and should do that for you a million times over. His power and beauty are incomparable. He is perfect in every single way. He is good and right and utterly trustworthy. And he loves us more than anyone possibly could. Nothing could be more satisfying to you than simply standing in his presence and taking in his glory and majesty. It might not feel that way to us all the time, but that's true. Nothing could be more satisfying for us. And nothing could be more enjoyable to us than knowing that we, that you, of all people, are intimately and fully loved by the Lord and Savior and Creator of the entire universe. That God who is utterly powerful, unfathomably so, who is beautiful beyond compare, who like, we can't even approach because he is just so vast and great, apart from him drawing us to himself, I mean, it is, I want to use the analogy of like approaching, like having an intimate like relationship with like a president or king, but that doesn't even compare to how unimaginably like just great it is to be able to say that the God of the universe adores and loves and cherishes us and is attentive to us. Nothing compares to that. That is the most enjoyable reality you could ever soak in. He is excellent, so marvel at him and marvel at what he has done for you to demonstrate his love to you. And then seek to be like him and tell others about our incredible Lord. Don't just keep that to yourself. Share that with people around you. When we, when we delight in something, we want to tell other people about it. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many like books or songs or artists that I've recommended to people because I just think their stuff is great. Like, and I know I'm not the only one. You guys do that too. Things that you love, you want to tell people about. So let's tell the world about Jesus Christ. Let's proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Redeemer, as a church, we are a group of people chosen graciously by God through faith to exalt Jesus Christ together. We are not just any old human institution. We are the living and active outpouring of God's love and grace. We are the gospel made visible. He is doing a spiritual work in and through us that is supernatural and cannot be accomplished by mere human means. What we hope we become together cannot be done by us, but God in his spirit is doing that work as we seek after him and trust in Jesus Christ. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and we are being shaped into holy beings as we rest in our confidence in Christ.
And that brings him glory and exaltation. Do you believe that? Do you expect radical transformation on Sunday mornings? Or do you just see these worship gatherings as like your weekly pep talk? Do you see community group as a place where the Holy Spirit is awakening, awakening and changing hearts in miraculous ways? Or is it just another time to connect with more people? Is your LTG just a time to talk through your problems with friends? Or is it a precious occasion where God is making permanent, life-altering refinements to your life as you experience spiritual fellowship with your brothers or sisters? Redeemer, when we gather in the name of Christ, expect him to be present. Let's just expect his spirit to work and move amongst us. Sin will be killed. Joy will be found. And love will be shared with one another. Let's see that from the word and let's hope in that together. Let's expect that together as we reflect on the fact that that's what the church is. Because God, again, like I said at the very beginning, if the church was just a human institution, we couldn't expect any of this stuff to happen. But it's not. God has chosen us. God has given us grace through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And he is making us holy so that we can exalt the name of Jesus Christ. It is his work. It is his construction. And we get to be instruments in that together. Let's pray and ask that he would do that work in us now. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, God, that's exactly what I pray for right now. Lord, do that work. Let us not simply think that this church, that Redeemer Church, is just an institution that people have created and that people will grow and change and make work. God, we can't do that. We rely utterly upon the work of your Son and the movement of your Holy Spirit to accomplish your vision for this church. God, if we don't remember that, if we don't remember the gospel, we will drift away. Father, keep us, guard us by your gospel through our hope in Jesus Christ, that we might be a true and healthy church that exalts the excellencies of our Lord. I pray this in his name. Amen.